Hello, I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to this, a special presentation of The Hub Dialogues. On this program, you'll hear big thinker and writer David Frum in conversation with The Hub's editor-at-large, Sean Spear. This program is part of a regular twice-monthly Hub Dialogue series, featuring David Frum's exclusive analysis of contemporary events for The Hub community. If you're enjoying this program, please visit our website at www.thehub.ca for all kinds of great thinking and insights into the big issues and ideas driving the public conversation. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined by David Frum for another installment of our bi-weekly video and podcast series, From Dialogues. David, as listeners and viewers know, is a staff writer at The Atlantic, the author of several books, and a highly coveted guest and commentator on various cable television programs. We're honored to provide him with a platform to share his insights and analysis on key issues concerning Canadian policy and politics. In today's episode, we're going to try something a bit different. There's a number of issues that I wanted to put to David, and I couldn't decide. So we're going to aim to cover a few different topics, including the controversy over the recently tabled Alberta Sovereignty Act, ongoing questions about if and when our economies will fall into recession, and finally, the phenomenon of the so-called missing workers who haven't returned following the pandemic. David, we have a full plate. Yes. Thanks, as always, for joining me for another episode of From Dialogues. Well, I'm glad to be here, especially because this one, we are going to be in the realm of guesswork and, and, to, and approximation. So we're going, to have, we're going to approach this not only with a sense of a full, a full buffet, but also in a spirit of humility, because we're going to be talking about things we don't fully understand. Well, let's start with expectations about an impending recession. Yesterday, the global polling firm Ipsos released poll results that found something like 85% of Canadians expect a recession in the next year. JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon is in the news this week, warning of a shift from a, quote, mild recession to a harsh one. Yet, notwithstanding these sediments, the job market continues to perform strong. Cor- corporate profits in Canada are high. In fact, in 2022, they set to make up the highest share of Canadian GDP ever. The story is broadly similar in the United States. What's going on here? Help me and our listeners understand the noisy economic data. Look, Years ago, I, I took part in a survey, I think for Politico, and one of the questions they asked was, what is something you would do if you were guaranteed you could not fail? And I answered, I, if I were guaranteed I could not fail, I would engage in highly leveraged, uh, wild financial speculations. <laughs> That's what I'd be doing. <laughs> um, so we don't know the answer to these questions. What, what is remarkable is given the pace of interest rate increases uh, since the spring, we would have expected that if there were going to be a recession, it would be showing up. It would have shown up already. And there would be crucial warning signs. We had the stock market shock. We would expect those signs to show up in the real economy. Instead, we heard in the United States, the third quarter of 2022 saw strong economic growth, almost 3%. Uh, the party the president won, an ex- you know, or uh, fended off um, losses. Uh, that's another indication, by the way, that people are in their own lives 
reasonably content, or Americans are, in Canada too. There's obviously stress in the housing market. And just today, as you and I record, there was news that the length of time for which American workers were taking unemployment insurance seemed to be growing a little bit longer than it has been. But, you know, those are small clouds in an otherwise fair horizon. And yeah, you have to think that these this pace of interest rate increases with more to come should lead to a recession of some kind. But, you know, I sometimes think the job of a central banker when prices are rising is, is like that, that particular hole in mini golf, the one with the windmills with the arms rotating. And, the, and what you're trying to do is to sink the ball through the little mouse hole at the bottom of the mini golf without being sliced by any I'm of the I'm familiar with it. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, maybe they've done it. Maybe they, they missed the arms and got it through the mouse hole and the ball is going to come out the other end and we're going to see price increases subside without a major recession. If so, the, the, the central bankers deserve every accolade we can give them because this is something extraordinarily difficult. If they can do it, it's a great achievement. You, you mentioned that we're operating in the world of speculation and conjecture. Let me put another proposition before you. I read an interview with an experienced corporate headhunter this week who said that, quote, I've never seen a job market like this. That is to say, even if the economy contracts, we're unlikely to see the spikes in unemployment that were common in previous right. decades. Let me put this to you. How much is the secular shift from labor short surpluses, rather, due to the baby boomers entering the workforce, to now labor shortages resulting from their exit, going to change the way we experience the normal ebbs and flows of the market economy? Well, we, we have talked about this before, um, and this is the great one of the great shaping forces of the 2020s, that the, the, the baby's born in 1946, turned 65 in 2021. And th- th- I think a lot of people have a false understanding of the way the baby boom works. They think, it ha- they think the soldiers came home from war and boom, every, you know, every family had a baby all at once. In fact, more babies were born in 47 than in 46, more in 48 than in 47, and it kept rising. And the peak years of the baby boom are the years from, in the United States, I'm going to forget the Canadian equivalent, but the United States are 58 to 62. That is, the rate, the the birth rate stops increasing in 1958, but the absolute number of children born in the United States is at its peak, 58, 59. There's a little dip. There's a recession in 1959, so there's a little dip, or there's a recession in 19. I forget, forget the 58. So there's a little dip in the later part of the 50s, but it's basically like a, a plateau and then the birth rate begins to fall and the absolute numbers of babies born begin to fall. So the, those people turn 65 between uh, 2023 and 2027. And that's when, a- after that, we are going to be under real constant labor force pressure, especially when you remember that the baby boom was a global phenomenon. So if you're looking to uh, say, well, we'll make up the shrinkage of the labor markets with immigrants. Everybody has the same demographic profile. I and mean, Central America has a rapidly aging population too. And so, so we are going to be in a, a period of, just as we were in the period of 1970s of chronically high resource prices. So it looks like the 2020s will be a period of chronic labor scarcity, relative labor scarcity. That doesn't mean you can't have recessions. It doesn't mean you can't have unemployment. It just means, you know, that's going to be a a shaping factor. The other thing is we have pulled into the the, the days of finding new sources of labor are over, uh, that women have entered the labor force fully. That happened actually a while ago. We are exploring the outer limits of keeping people working longer into their 60s, despite all the 
chatter about self-driving cars and AI. Um, you know, that was, uh, you know, and there's endless science fiction talk about the, the imminence of how AI is going to transform the, and put everybody out of work. So far, the results are, in a, in a real world sense, pretty disappointing and pretty unexciting. So it, it may be, I, I don't want to venture that it will never happen, but it does look like, yeah, that, that unemployment, that, that, so that, that, that slowdowns in economic activity may not translate into the big employment shocks we've seen in the past. In response to some of these uh, trends that you just outlined, in here in Canada, the Trudeau government has recently announced the goal of reaching half a million immigrants in 2025, which is more than double the United States as a share of its population. As you probably know, David, this has generated some criticism on the grounds that it risks undermining the market power of Canadian workers who should benefit in the form of higher wages due to the demographic-induced labor scarcity that you talked about. What, what do you think? How should policymakers think about the role of public policy to, do, to, to deal with this protracted period of labor scarcity that, that is before us? The Canadian example reminds us that there's no such thing as a worker. There are workers with a variety of profiles, a variety of skills. One of the ways that Canada has differed from the United States, and one of the things that has contributed to the success of, of the Canadian experiment over the past 20 years, is Canada has not only taken more immigrants relative to its size, but they've taken much more highly skilled immigrants. Now, it's not that highly skilled are better. It's that, I mean, people are people, and every, every, every kind of skill that human beings has is, is needed by somebody. But the, what, what Canada's done is it is consciously or unconsciously put wage pressure at the top of the labor market. So if you are an accountant, if you are a doctor, if you're an engineer, if you're an, an accountant, you, you, in Canada, you encounter considerable competition from, from immigrants. There's some at the bottom of the market too, of course, but the, the people in the Canadian professional classes have really been exposed. And that has been a force that has constrained wage increases at the top of professional classes. Canadian professionals do tend to make less money than their U.S. counterparts. And it's been a force, one of the forces, flattening the income distribution in Canada. It's been a pro-equality uh, choice. The United States has taken its immigration very much from the unskilled. They've entered at the bottom of the market. So they protect their highly skilled from competition. It's quite hard to come to the United States and be a doctor, but it's pretty easy to come to the United States and be a gardener. And so uh, immigration in the United States has been an anti-equality force. Now, the question is, how many engineers are there on earth who want to come to Canada? And the thing that I would be considering is it's not an undifferentiated pressure on wages. Is that Canada's had a strategy or a practice, because I don't know how, any, how conscious any of this was, that has put the wage pressure at the top of the labor market. If you start taking more people, expanding indefinitely your intake, you're going to end up with more people lower on the skill profile. And again, they're all children of God and somebody loves them. They all have children and parents. But they're going to be put, you're going to reverse the social effect of Canadian immigration. Canadian immigration has been relatively uncontroversial despite its big numbers, as compared to U.S. counterparts, for a number of reasons. You know, that it's, it's the immigrants to Canada come from, like the song says, from far and wide. So you don't create linguistic mind. I mean, there are neighborhoods where you'll see a lot of Korean spoken, neighborhoods where you see a lot of Cantonese spoken. But immigrants as a group speak lots of different languages, so they need to acculturate very fast. In the United States, they tend to all come in speaking Spanish. And so they don't acculturate so fast. But one of the reasons that it has been uncontroversial is because the typical Canadian who's at the middle of the income distribution says, 
Immigration seems to me to be expanding, not putting pressure on my wages while expanding my choices. I have a dentist in my small town that I might not otherwise have because of immigration. And meanwhile, my job doesn't seem to be under a lot of pressure. The American counterpart has exactly the opposite reaction. And the question to ask Canadians is, if you start upping the numbers endlessly over and over, do you change the social impact of immigration by making that Canadian at the middle say, wait a minute, I'm seeing fewer benefits to me and more competition to me because these immigrants are moving debt, they're sliding down the wage scale and therefore in putting pressure on more and more people. It's a, just a, a ton of insight there. Thanks, David. And, and a, a good segue to pivot to our next topic, uh, the so-called missing workers. There are a lot of reports in the United States and some in Canada about workers not returning to the job market after COVID-19. There are various explanations, as you probably know, including early retirement, generous public benefits, reduced immigration, long COVID, etc. What do you think's going on here? Is this the case of the great resignation? Or to our early conversation, is it the great expectations on the part of workers? Well, I think when you have a complex phenomenon with a lot of explanations, probably all of them are true to a greater or lesser degree. So we're, we're arguing about, about degrees. One thing that very much in the United States that I think is a big factor, and I don't know how much this plays in Canada, has been the ravages of opioid addiction. Mm. That drug addiction um, got um, became more and more devastating, especially in rural America. And, and the, the, the plague begins to really accelerate about 2014. I'm now going to forget the number of deaths, but deaths exceed 2015, exceed 14, 16, exceeds 15, 17, and so on. And it's just, it's just devastating because it impacts not only, it's, it's not just that people are killed, but they're disabled. It destroys, it upends their lives, it weakens their commitment to work. No plague lasts forever. And there were signs in 2019 that things had gotten, were, were ceasing to get worse and might be about to be get, to get better. Then comes COVID. COVID keeps people at home, robs them of purpose and activity, and puts cash in their hands from the government. And so 2020 becomes, in the United States, a peak year for COVID death. People who had been, who had been struggling with addiction relapse and succumb to it some more. And I, I think one of the things that needs to be entered into the consideration here is what we are dealing is, is some of the aftershock of, of the opioid epidemic. It's been a problem in Canada as well. And I, I, I think that that is having an, an impact because when you hear about workers being unavailable, when you talk to employers, they'll tell you, well, it isn't just that I can't get workers. It's that when I hire a worker who seems to want the job, they do not consistently show up. So when, when someone is working, has, has a job that they, they sought, that pays them higher wages than that, that job paid a year or two ago, and they still can't get there every one of the five days, something's, something's awry in that person's life. And one of the things I think we really need to be thinking about is the problem of, of, of addiction. And we need to be tracking it, not just in terms of the lives it takes, but of the lives it disrupts. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation courtesy of The Hub. 
Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. These issues are seem particularly salient for mail workers. Nick Eberstadt first documented the problem of declining male labor force participation in his 2016 book, Men Without Work. As you, as you may know, David, he recently updated the analysis, and the story seems even worse. Employment rates for prime-age men in the United States is now lower than it was in and around the Great Depression. And yet, as Richard Reeves has outlined in his really widely regarded book this year on the state of boys and men, not just in the U.S., but around the West, there's been a, a, a tendency to, to understate the issues and challenges facing men in the economy. What do you think's behind that? And how can we grapple with unique particularities facing boys and men without in any way devaluing or downplaying the ongoing challenges that women have for kind of full participation in our economy? Well, the lives of men and women are not competitive. They are complementary. And so it, it does a woman no good to say, well, you got a raise, but your husband's out of work or has quit the labor force. You've got to, you know, your daughter's doing great, but your son is doing bad. That, that, that's, not, that's not a consolation prize for anybody. Reeves focuses a lot on education because it's something we can measure. He is, he is associated with the Brookings Institute, one of the great homes of measurement. But I think, I mean, part of what is going on is that as it was true in the 1950s that men were less, uh, less engaged in schooling than women were. They were more likely to go to college, but that was a small part of the population. The larger part that went to high school, uh, men were more likely to be high school dropouts than women in 1958. But the difference back then was the returns to education were so much less. Um, if, if you didn't finish high school, there was a job on an assembly line and it was maybe unionized. And if so, it paid better than the job that a woman who had who completed high school could get as a cashier or as a filing clerk or something like that, because those jobs were tended not to be unionized. What has happened is that um, as as the, the wages for less formally educated work have not kept pace, the the, the sex that is more attractive to that work has found itself um, more at sea and less attractive as marriage partners, and of course, is less, less likely to be in an intact family. And so that takes away one of the great motives that people have to go to work, which is the, the pride and joy of supporting a family and the people you love. So it's, it's going to be a real problem. And it's a problem everywhere. I don't, I, I really, one of the things where I think one of the things where Eberstadt can really educate us and more is you need to understand this is a global phenomenon. And, and that means we, we may be a little pessimistic about the ability of policy to make a question. This may be something we have to manage rather than something we can, we can solve because there is a limit to how much higher education you're going to be able to get into, into the population period, but especially men, because it involves a lot, it involves a lot of sitting still in rows and uh, doing things that don't come naturally to boys and to young men. Okay. Well, let's move on to our final topic, which is indeed about public policy and in particular, the Alberta Sovereignty Act and its broader implications and, and insights. The, the law, which is the first of the new Alberta government led by Premier Daniel Smith, has already been subject to sweeping legislative reforms, which suggests a lack of rigor and due diligence. Is this merely a one-off case of poorly designed policy? Or David, does it reflect a broader trend of performative policy making? And if so, what does it tell us? Well, there, there is a, an old 
saying, I, I've heard it quoted from as, as uh, a rural saying that when you're dealing with a recalcitrant mule, the first thing you do is pick up a, a stick and hit the mule. And after that, you have its attention. And I think Alberta has a little bit of that attitude toward the rest of Canada. So I don't think that the Alberta Sovereignty Act was ever meant by anyone to be a real law. It was meant to be something to get people's attention. And uh, to some degree, one has to be sympathetic to that. Um, and ha- Alberta depends on completing natural resource projects. That's been the federal government has not been very helpful, over, to put it mildly, over the past half dozen years. And, and conditions remain tough in Alberta. And Albertans are saying, we want, you know, we want some attention here, please. And we want you to take as seriously our problems as you would if those problems occurred in, for example, Quebec. So, I th- so some of this is classic Western protest politics. But I think there's also something about the modern age of social media and um, the politician as star that involves... It- involves performance. And this is not, it's, I think it's probably somewhat worse on the right than on the left, but, you know, it's on the left too. I mean, in the, the famous Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, is she looking forward to a future as someday chair of the House Ways and Means Committee? Is she looking forward to running for senator or governor of New York? No, that, her job, what she's trying to do is become maximally famous on social media from the House. So she's not passing a lot of laws. She's not getting a lot of things done. She she talks about her Green New Deal, but has she made any effort? Has she had any success in advancing it? No, she's not really interested because she is looking for other kinds of rewards. Now, for every one of her, there are 10 on the Republican side doing the same kind of um, stunts. And, you know, and look at Ron DeSantis, who governed in Florida. He talked very provocatively, but he governed reasonably responsibly. Every once in a while, he would take a kick at a company that offended him, and that's pretty disgraceful and, and sinister. But, well, you know, he focused on the ever on improving the environmental conditions in the Everglades, and he raised teacher pay, and he got the kids back into school during COVID. He has, he has a record. But his plan to run for president is all about stunts, luring uh, illegal migrants or border crossers onto a private jet and flying them to Martha's Vineyard. What is that supposed to accomplish? It's supposed to draw attention for its own sake. And we live in a media environment where that kind of, we're, we're back in the days of television, we used to have things that historian Daniel Borston called pseudo events that, that, that were events made for the television camera, but they were still events that you would actually have the politician would go somewhere or say, you know, do something or in some way act the part of a politician. Now you have these things that are really just trolls because they're designed for narrow, very highly specific social media uh, Use. And I think that's what's going on in Alberta. And look, obviously it pays off or people would stop doing it, but it does it pay off for anyone other than the immediate beneficiary? It, the verdict on that looks pretty dark. To, to your point, David, about equal opportunity engagement on these types of, of tactics on both sides of the political aisle, just as we see the Alberta government speedily trying to make amendments in real time to the Alberta Sovereignty Act, we have the Trudeau government similarly making amendments to its own gun legislation, which one can't help but think was was designed for the purposes of wedge politics and, and less about making concrete reforms to, to our gun laws. But I, I guess when we started this conversation, I wasn't sure how we might connect all the dots, but I, I wonder if this may be it. At, at the outset, we talked about some big secular trends in our economy and our labor market including aging demographics and the implications for our retirement income system, our healthcare system, and so on. These require big policy reforms to put those programs and systems 
on a more sustainable footing. But if our politics are incentivized towards this kind of short-term tactical policy output, does it does it stand as an obstacle to the types of reforms that we need to make within Canada and certainly uh, need to be made within the United States to put uh, Washington's budget on something resembling a sustainable path? Well, in Canada, the risk is rather different than the United States. In, in Canada, um, because there's such a powerful civil service, every time the, it, it's not that things stop, if the politicians abdicate, it's not that things stop happening. It's that political control over those things is diminished. The, the civil service continues to govern. And so the challenge for politicians is uh, to keep a grip on what the civil service is, to be aware of what it's doing, to have to make sure that their own ideas lead the process rather than are led by them. I, I mean, from a civil servant's point of view, every day that a politician is doing a stunt is a good day. You know, <laughs> that's a day that the politician is not in the office bothering the civil servant. But in the United States, where the civil service is so much weaker, then things do tend to get neglected. It also produces artificial polarization. You mentioned the Canadian gun laws. I mean, the, the point, the beginning of wisdom on all gun policy anywhere is to constantly, is to prevent a union of people with real legitimate needs for firearms as tools. Farmers, ranchers, hunters who are so crucial in many parts of the rural environment, people in isolated places with real needs for self-defense, and, and criminals and weirdos. And you're, you're, the, the job of, it would seem to me, of good gun policy is make it as life as, as unburdensome as possible for people who need this tool, which is indispensable in a rural area, uh, in order to, so that they do not identify with the crooks and weirdos. And, and so the, the Canadian policy, when at its best, has always said, there's, we have one set of rules or one set of approaches to handguns and militarized weapons, and a much more per, a permissive approach to, uh, to rifles and shotguns of a kind that a farmer or a rancher or an isolated person needing self-defense would use. And, and this has been, and when, when the Trudeau government and other governments, and the Chrétien government before it, have tried to make a political point out of long guns, what they do is they create in Canada the very kind of radicalization that has made gun safety so difficult in the United States. And so if, if your goal is to police handguns and militarized weapons, you need to see the farmer or the rancher, the rural person as your constituent and your ally and, and not your target. Let's wrap up with a, a big picture question about um, the state of, of Canadian politics and, and maybe political economy more generally. I, I mentioned the poll at the outset in which a, a, a large majority of Canadians are concerned about a, a recession. We, we don't have an election uh, for the next couple of years. But what, what is one to make of that sense of public sentiment? And, and what are the risks for uh, the, the government in Ottawa? Well, I think it, we, the, the, that kind of public sentiment, we need to see what people do and not what they say. So if you are asked, do you see a recession coming? And you may say yes. Now let's see what happens when you take your credit card to the mall to shop for Christmas. How worried are you that you are going to lose your personal job? And the, mall, the credit card receipts at the mall tell us, I'm uh, not that worried. I'm going to get a little bit into debt into December. I'm confident I'll be able to pay it off in January and February. And I think we will see how shoppers behave. That will tell us what they what they really think. The, the, the risk for the uh, government in, in Ottawa is um, that it, the risk is right now, one of the risks for it is, is the risk of all Canadian governments, which is you run out of stuff 
that you want to do. And then you get drawn into servicing micro constituencies. Um, you get drawn into cultural politics. And while Canada is more urban, the, the cultural politics tend to favor the liberal side because Canada is more urban. In the end, it's divisive and, um, and people don't like division. I, I'm writing a piece for The Atlantic right now about one of the lessons of 2022 was how trolling can work for a while, but ask Mehmet Oz and ask Blake Masters in Arizona how far you get if you make trolling the center of your message. In the end, people want to know that politicians are, are doing serious work for serious purposes. And so the challenge for any government, the government of Ottawa included, is that you do and be seen to do serious work for serious purposes. Well, David, I said at the outset I was going to put a number of topics to you and you knocked them all out of the park as, as usual. I look forward to catching up in a couple of weeks, which will be our final episode of From Dialogues in 2022. Until then, thank you for joining us and I, I look forward to talking soon. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this special presentation of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Attar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornoski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.